from Radio Kismet. This is the American Poetry Review. I'm Elizabeth Scanlon. I'm Stephen Kleinman. And I'm Talia Geiger. And this is the American Poetry Review podcast. Uh, Welcome back. This is our third episode. And today on the show, we're going to talk a little bit about the idea of mentorship and influence. Um, We have poet and editor of the Kenyan Review, David Baker, uh, talking about some of the poems of Stanley Plumley that are in the current issue uh, and Stanley Plumley's legacy. Um, We are also going to just talk about the idea of of what mentors mean in our in our lives. Um, let's get into it. This, is, this one is planet. There is the thought that when you go, you take it all with you, whatever it is. Dying as either an ontological condition of past caring or a heartsick feeling that none of it mattered, not the friend forgotten nor the friend denied. Not the child that didn't happen, nor the years lost, nor the day you walked away, nor the centuries since, nor the days on end of starting out the day. Not the thinking and rethinking what you thought, now that your body is no longer yours, nor even a body in death's fantasy, but a look-alike of makeup and sweet fluids, lifted as a soul by several plated ropes and planted in the pastoral, if alien, green ground, soon to be in the image of Walt Whitman, a leaf of grass, lilac, or budding apple tree, or even better, the resurrection of the wheat. When I was 12, when all of us were there, I watched a bawling steer locked in the vice of a large steel collar receive between its wide black eyes at least one blow of one sledgehammer, if only to stun it and allow it to be dragged and strung up by its length where another boy, maybe high school or older, slit its throat with the half-moon of a knife to let the blood spout out, the animal still alive before the next in line. Then in the spring, Mary Neal, The one true angel in the class, whose beauty was enough, could not transcend the polio around her, which rose like heavy water inside her, so that on all our visits, all we could see was her loyal head emerging from the white enamel breathing of the lungs, the rear-view mirror fixed in such a way she didn't have to look at us. For too many years, I've dreamed of her, or someone like her at the far end of a platform or at a window on a train slowly coming in, her face half-profiled in the late evening sunlight, the way, in the way of recurring dreams we fall in love. The mistake would be in real life to try to meet that train, to be standing there waiting. And then a day it happened. And you can see in the light blue marveling of her eyes, how this was meant to be. Except it wasn't. It was dreaming of another kind. Once the closing dark has subtracted everything, was she beautiful, lying there, 1951, dying in ways that were invisible? And what is this loneliness we long for, in that someone 
no one else can be, who lives or dies, depending, but who was there. This is the American Poetry Review podcast. I'm Stephen Kleinman, and on the phone I have poet and editor David Baker. David, I'm wondering if you can just start by telling us a little bit about who Stanley Plumley is and what your relationship is to him. Sure. Um, I'm happy to have this conversation with you and to represent Stanley. Um, for people who might not know, Stanley Plumley um, died this past April at the age of almost 80 um, as one of the most important and beautiful lyric poets in, in our in our recent history. He was from Ohio. He was a well-known and beloved teacher and critic, um, but it's mainly his poems that, that we have. Um, rich, complicated lyric poems. We are so Go lucky ahead. to have four poems of uh, from his final collection in Amer- the American Poetry Review, and we're so thankful to you for sending them to us. It's my pleasure. Michael Collier and I are serving as uh, the executors for Stanley's Literary Matters, and he left um, he left a gift for everybody uh, when he died in April, um, an unpublished, finished um, book of new poems with um, four pieces of prose sprinkled in as well. And it's been Michael's and my uh, honor to send these poems to magazines and find the right homes for them and to take care of the book to see that it um, finds its way into the world of the book. Fantastic. Uh, we're celebrating, we're here celebrating Stan's career in a sort of way, and yet these poems spend so much time in his childhood. Um, I wonder if you can talk about Stan as someone who was in the, was in the natural world in his poems. Sure. I mean, he grew up outside. He grew up in Virginia and Ohio. His father um, had animals at some time. He's, he writes often about the livestock and about his father being, uh, how difficult it was for his father to butcher um, some of the animals, the pigs or the steers. In this one, it's a bawling steer, I think he says. Right. Um, and the, 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 that's an image that comes up in his poems over and over and over, that moment of, of, of death, again, just like his own. Um, but his poems everywhere are figured with trees, like the sycamore poem, with birds, with the, the abundance of that green world outside where he was, where he was very happy. Um, yeah. yeah, that's one of the dominant systems in his poems. And then, you know, you'll see him turn equally to the memory of people, just like leaves and just like birds. Here it's Mary Neal in one of the other poems. Mm-hmm. Let's see, what, what's that teacher's name? Um, he remembers them. He remembers himself as a child. Um, I think partly because he never had children himself. Um, he was, in some way, everybody's father who had him in class. They looked to him as, uh, as a father figure. Um, but he had no children himself, and so I think that's one of the reasons why he may he may write about being a child or grade school uh, often. Well, you dropped two pieces of bait there, so I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> pick up on them. I I couldn't help <laughs> okay. but I couldn't help but chuckle at the idea of his father not uh, or or struggling to butcher an animal because as a former student of Stan's, um, I know full well that he didn't mind butchering a student in the classroom. 
<laughs> yeah, much less blood that way. Right. Um, he talks about his father you know, having to butcher an animal and then having to knock himself out drinking. Um, right. You know, to try to to get through that. That shows up in book after book. That image. Well, but I have to say uh, uh, about Stan as a teacher that there was a certain um, rigor that he brought to doing the hard work. That 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 yeah. came through in not just in his writing, but also in the teaching that he did and in the, um, in the prose writing that he did, especially about Keats. Um, That's right. I mean, he worked very hard, and he was, a, he was a scholar of Keats, but he was a scholar of his students' work, too. I never had him in class, but I had so many conversations with him about teaching. Michael Collier um, reminds me that Stan's favorite bit of advice to students um, is you'll remember this too, Stephen. Do the work. Absolutely. Over and over. Just do the work. Right. Don't worry about the profession, the job, the book, the publication. Do the work. And Stanley himself, I don't know anybody who worked harder than Stanley. Right. Day after day, hour after hour, slowly, quickly, he was always working on, on something, on a group of poems or on an essay or on a book. I, I admire him as a teacher so much, and one of the um, one of the memories that I have of the, the memorial service that we both went to in at the University of Maryland um, recently over the fall was somebody was speaking to what sadness he felt when a former student was no longer writing. the The particular success wasn't the issue as much as whether or not they were still working. So maybe I'll end with this one final question, which is Stan is a, a, a particular um, force in a particular generation of poets. I'm wondering, as his friend and also his contemporary, though uh, a bit younger, what is it that you hope that young poets take from Stan or wh what readers of poetry hold on to from his work? That's a beautiful question, Stephen. Um, I hope that people take from Stanley's work or learn in their own work patience. Um, I am myself alarmed at the velocity at which things happen in the poetry world these days. Stanley was just in no hurry. Um, he would not let a poem go until it was perfect. And in fact... Um, as I've been going through his work again, I'm finding him returning to a poem that he may have written 20 or 30 years ago and rewriting. Um, there's a poem in Middle Distance, in fact. One of the poems is a revision of a poem that he published in the late 70s. It's 45 wow. years old, and he just couldn't let it go. Wow. Um, and there's a, there's a precision and care and artfulness to the to the poems on the page that I think very few other people have the capability to achieve. Um, but it's a goal, I think. And I hope that that kind of attention and patience um, will continue in, in our art. So as I said, I you know, there's a lot of noise and a lot of velocity and a lot of mm -hmm. sloppy writing. Mm -hmm. um, and none of those things um, none of those things uh, would We're, be coming from Stanley. Nor, nor allowed in his office. Um, <laughs> no, you're right. I, I, I have to, <laughs> what are you talking about? 
I have to yeah, tell you're you, right. I have to tell you one story. I, I just love the idea of it getting to live on forever. That I came back from break one year and Stan had me in in office hours and I showed him four poems and he said, Great, bring them all to workshop. And I thought, <laughs> What what a disaster. Everyone will hate me. And he said, No, don't worry about it. And um you know, 15 minutes into the hour-long thrashing that I got for writing those four <laughs> poems, <laughs> I, I knew why nobody would hate me for it. <laughs> you were the sacrificial steer, I guess, huh? I guess so. Well, thank you yeah, so much for... for... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, for as difficult as he was on your work or students' work, it was nothing compared to what he um, did to his own poems well, and I, how, yeah. how demanding he was of them. And it certainly was always clear that it was a pedagogical choice, that there was a beauty yeah. in what he expected and what he thought you were capable of. That's it. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on, on the podcast and, and for sending us these poems. It's, it's fantastic, fantastic to get to <laughs> play a role here. My real pleasure, Stephen. I hope that what people will do is find the poems in the magazine and next August find this book, Little Distance. Absolutely. Thank you. So we were talking about the idea of mentorship and influence and our relationships with our teachers in part because Stephen had this conversation, this opportunity to interview uh, David Baker a little bit, who is uh, the current executor, literary executor for Stanley Plumley's uh, poems, some of which are in the current issue of APR. Um, and Stephen, of course, had studied with both David Baker and Stanley Plumley. Um, and that just got us talking about about all those relationships. Of course, Talia here in the studio with us, our very own Talia, <laughs> has been a student of both Stephen Kleinman yes, and myself. Uh, so she also has a, a unique perspective on these things. Um, I guess just to begin with, I would say that personally, I don't know that I ever stayed in one place long enough as a student uh, to, to really have a mentor, though I certainly had wonderful uh, teacher relationships. Um, you know, I, I studied with Thomas Lux at Sarah Lawrence and um, A.V. Christie was a wonderful uh, poetry teacher of mine in the past. But um, I, uh, I don't know, I, I, I find it, I find it so uh, endearing, I guess, heartwarming uh, to, to think about uh, people's uh, long memories of their teachers. Do either of you have like favorite memories of your of your poetry teachers? Yeah, I'm, I have a ton, honestly, because yeah. uh, ever since I was younger and my parents make fun of me <laughs> about it to this day that I love a lot of my teachers because I just got lucky, I guess, and That's had a so lot sweet. of good <laughs> teachers and mentors. Um, yeah, definitely one piece of advice that I've gotten from multiple teachers slash mentors about my own poetry was that I could like loosen up mm -hmm. and that was like such a mind-bending thing to think about because <laughs> I like to write poems that were like tight and mechanical and like precise uh -huh. and for things to like break apart it was really nice to learn that things could be loose and fun and right. I think that's 
when I also developed such good relationships with those people who taught me mm-hmm. such great pieces of advice like that. Yeah. I, I've had great relationships with various mentor figures mm-hmm. over uh, over the last decade or so. But I have to say that as far as my writing is concerned, I, I've learned a lot more from being jealous of people. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, a good kind of jealousy, seeing someone able to do something I couldn't. And well, right, I mean, that's always work. like, that's like the ultimate compliment, right? Yeah. Is, right? Is to say, like, I wish I had written that. Yeah. I mean, I think that all writers sort of have those moments where there's like, damn it. Yeah. I wish I'd gotten there first. <laughs> and now that's like, that's something I always try and share with students mm-hmm. is not actually what I think, but other poems that might be doing something they don't know how to do yet. Right. Mm-hmm. So much more interesting. Right. Identifying where your envy lies and right. making good use of it. <laughs> right. That's how you learn the right? best, I feel. Right. I, I wonder um, if if you have, found influence in the role of being the editor of of the American Poetry Review? Well, you know, I mean, honestly, I, uh, I mean, full disclosure, I didn't do an MFA. I, you know, I, I took uh, a roundabout way of getting my bachelor's because I was in a couple of different schools and, and was, a you know, supporting myself uh, as I worked through school. So at the moment when I might have gone and done an MFA, I, I got my first job at APR as an editorial assistant. And at that moment, I was thinking, if I leave now, I'm just going to want this job when I get out on the other side, and it's not going to be here anymore. So in a way, I mean, working in the, you know, in the, the trenches of APR was my <laughs> MFA. <laughs> um, and uh, and I've and I've really loved it, but I do feel like I have certainly had um, I have been influenced by, and I I think have influenced um, uh, writers throughout these years. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's such a not to be corny, but it really is such a gift to see the draft process of someone who. Um, who you're in that privileged position with, you know, of working through proofs. Like, uh, I think especially because they know that they're already accepted for publication and that, like, we're fine-tuning and and that there's, you know, that there's a, uh, already a, an acceptance there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You have a, a, a real window into uh, that person's process. Right. That's yeah. almost like a little baby mentorship in itself. <laughs> it's a very, a very uh, tightly contained one, but but yeah, yeah it's uh, it's certainly been uh, a wonderful thing. Yeah. Isn't, isn't it great when you're looking through a pile of submissions and you find something that's just totally alive? Absolutely. Yeah. And it makes you want to write to it, yeah. write up to it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's that's uh, over. I mean, over the years, people have asked me like, "Don't you get?" tired sometimes of like of reading submissions because we do we read a lot of submissions but I honestly don't I don't get tired of reading submissions because to me it's it's panning for gold right like you just kind Mm -hmm. of know that there's always going to be something um you don't know going into it what it's going to be um but uh I also just to return to the idea of uh of influence you know um in the in the current issue not to shill for the issue but in the current issue uh we have um, so many uh, wonderful poets, and uh, one of them, of course, is Sharon Olds, who um, 
before I was with the magazine, when I was a younger uh, uh, writer, before I even conceived of myself as a poet, I was really taken with Sharon Olds. And um, to have her be someone who so frequently contributes to the magazine um, has, uh, has always like meant a lot to me. Um, if I could, actually, I want to read this one poem of hers um, from, oh, actually, it's not the current issue. It's one issue behind in the September issue. Um, but it's called Graduation Aria, um, if I may. When she tried to shush the families behind us and in front of us and beside us, scowling in fastidious distaste, they were chatting during her grandson's graduation. When the ceremony had ended, when the dinner was eaten, when we took her back to her room in the college dormitory like a medieval fortress and went over the room with her again, the window, the light, the heat, the key, the bathroom she would share with strangers, I pretended everything was fine, but I saw for a moment that my mother really had been an orphan. She'd never for a moment had a mother who could love her. So I kissed her forehead and left her there, little pack rat in an old stone room with a 24-foot ceiling. And I went upstairs, and in a narrow dorm bed like a trough, my husband and I flew through the air caroling. Now I see I was trilling like the wren who threw the Phoebe nestling out of the back porch nest. I was that kind of happy, having put my mother in durance. For years then, I ate my gladness of her anxious night without knowing I was eating it. Weeks before her death, she smiled and said, remember that dungeon? And I kissed her with sudden affection toward the one who without having been loved by her own mother had taught me to love her and hate her, to hate and love. Wow, thank you for reading that. That's yeah. fantastic. I was just suddenly moved to read that poem because I was, <laughs> as we were sitting here talking about, you know, the assembling the, the magazine and everything, I really do have so many moments of reading poems, of going through them in the submissions, right, and then going through the process of getting them into the magazine, where it's like, I learned so much just by the process of reading that poem over and over and over again. Something right. about, like, the the specificity of her willingness to... Um, be to reveal some sort of ugly facet of the of the character, right? Right. And also a poem about learning from the mother mm -hmm. is a sort of mentor relationship. Right, right, <laughs> right. To hate and to love. Right. Yeah. Next, we're going to hear from Maggie Queenie, author of the poem Glamour, which won the Stanley Kunitz Memorial Prize this year. Glamour. The look I am hunting, the one that through color and cut glares the stare into a skull or a skein of lightning, a switch stalled at dawn or the gloaming along an equator. What fascinates, I shine like flame-blackened foil, a rhinestone snoring at lake bottom, a Rex brass-bound astrolabe, bright as hard tender, newly minted, mewling and naked under, oil-slick pleather sieving light, prism-like, my limbs sing their siren song, 
pull ribbons of pure note over the pack's snarl and bark, teeth pop, dangling chain of saliva snaps. Deep under, I stay seamless as a safe, a rust-sealed letter box, corroded pill case, my insides scoured to looking glass by a tangle of wind trapped, a cyclone circling the space, the size a doll's eye makes, panting my small breath. So Talia, you had mentioned earlier something about uh, having spent a lot of time with uh, one of Karen Carson's books. Uh, yeah, a few your... of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, was there was there a poem in particular that you had in mind, or? Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's from Breaking News. Mm-hmm. I read his full, well, almost his full collected poems. So I spent a lot of time with a lot of his work, and I'll be reading Spin Cycle and Spin Cycle Two. Great. Spin cycle. Here it comes again, I said. I couldn't hear myself speak for the thug thug helicopter overhead. I put in the earplugs. Everything went centrifugal. Spin cycle two. Gun gun. Earplugs in. Blank blank. Hmm. <laughs> And what is it? What is it specifically that uh, drew you to those? What were you, what were you gleaning from the? I think just the bareness of them, mm-hmm. and that it's especially spin cycle too. Mm-hmm. How quick it is, and that it's just basically a much more contained version of the first one. Mm-hmm. I just found that technique to be so interesting, especially when I was trying to assemble my own poetry manuscript for the first time mm-hmm. and trying to think of more poems to add, Mm -hmm. and saw that there was one poem with an accompanying poem that's essentially the same thing. It was like a really interesting That they can speak to each other, that they can have their, right? They can have their own conversation. Yeah, I think it's interesting too that uh, people, uh, certainly lately, these days, people like to talk a lot of shit about, uh, you know, the insta-poets, Instagram poets, uh, and have a lot of uh, bad feeling about short lines or like very spare kind of poems but i think you know those kind of poems have always existed i mean granted uh you know personal preference aside like it's it's not it's not the number of syllables per line that uh that makes the difference but rather right what you're doing with them and i think the thing about instagram poets quote unquote Mm -hmm. is like they feel like quote unquote empty uh or so yeah Mm -hmm. and Poems like these, like you said, they've been around, they've existed, but I think the difference also feels more like uh, the line breaks are also more purposeful in mm-hmm. a way. Um, the blank space in between the lines has an effect, so it's mm-hmm. just, yeah. Well, and there's there's so much sensual information, yeah. like even in a very spare poem, that you have... You know, you have sight and sound and uh, tactile and all of these things, right? Not empty at all. Mm -mm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
this has been the American Poetry Review podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we'd like to thank our producer and engineer, Joey Sweeney. The American Poetry Review is a Radio Kismet podcast. For more about Radio Kismet, visit radiokismet.com or follow them on Instagram at Radio Kismet. Please also follow APR on Twitter and Instagram. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend.